Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we get to sing these glorious truths, these doctrines that are, that are very carefully crafted in ways that enable us to sing them as if we are praying them together as a church body to you in worship and adoration, confession, praise. And so we thank you. Lord, we open your word now because we are hungry to feast on it and to eat it and to drink it to internalize it in such a way that it really changes us. Father, I pray that that would be the case. As every week we pray this, Lord, I I pray it especially this week, that you would so move in our hearts as to eradicate faithless fear that would keep us from being faithful to the gospel, ministering and, and speaking and standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that that the work I ask for your church body, you would do in my heart as well. As you have already begun it, O Father, continue, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be there for a little while until we get to chapter 2. And uh, we'll be there for probably longer. This morning, before we begin, I, I need to make a confession to you. Several days ago, a man came to my house to examine my roof. He knocked at the door, and Hunter, my four-legged security alarm, greeted him with a friendly bark. I greeted him with a polite handshake that, truth be told, was offered in a way that strategically communicated to him that I had no time for small talk. This would be a business conversation only, and please make it short and go about your way. Uh, Somewhere during that conversation, this verbal exchange about shingles and skylights and rain gutters, I must have said something that led on to the fact that I'm a pastor. And he made the kind of polite, quasi-religious comment that salesmen make to religious people when they're trying to close the sale. In an instant, I realized that I had just opened the proverbial door to engage with this man about the gospel. And I could have said to him that that diagnostic question about what he would say to God if he fell off of my roof and found himself laying on the ground in front of the pearly gates and heard God ask him, why should I let you into my heaven? I could have asked him if he attended church somewhere. I could have asked him if he read the Bible. I could have asked him if he considered himself a good person and then given him the good person test. I could have handed him a tract. To be sure, there were probably 10 different ways, maybe 50 different ways I could have entered into conversation with him about these important things. But you know what I said to him? Nothing. Nothing. And I confess that to my shame. Looking back on the encounter with my young roofer friend, I asked myself, why didn't I speak for Christ? It's not that I don't know how. I do it every Sunday. Perhaps it was because I was in a hurry to get onto, you know, the, the important business of my day. I was, after all, taking time off to meet with this Roofer, I needed to get back to work. I had a sermon to write. 
I had people to counsel. I had phone calls to make. We've got a new office building to build. Maybe it was my fear that if I offended him, he would somehow in our business dealings rip me off or fail to put his best effort into his work on my roof. Kind of silly, isn't it? Or maybe I just didn't want to get into kind of a risky conversation that might lead to a contrary discussion about religious things. Maybe I imagine some kind of unfortunate outcome to all of that. An unfortunate outcome, not for him, or really for my house, but for me. The fact is, all of those reasons, every one of them, has nothing to do with Christ, has nothing to do with this man's eternal soul or his need for salvation. Rather, in my silence, my silence had everything to do, not with him, not about Christ, not about God, but with myself, my own self-preservation. In short, I had to confess that in my encounter with that young man, in that moment, dare I admit it, I was ashamed of the gospel. I share that with you this morning, not for personal, personal catharsis or to just get it off my chest in some way. No, I share that with you because I think if you were honest, you yourself would have to admit there have been many times, many times, perhaps even a few in the last week, when you fail to speak of the glory of Christ and his saving work on man's behalf because you too were ashamed of the gospel. Do you know why we exist? Sure you do. We have it posted on the wall outside this door. Let's say it together. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. That's why we're here. And frankly, we fail in that mission far too often. In fact, probably we fail more than we succeed. And if you're willing to admit that, if you're willing to admit that on occasion... And I say on occasion just to soften the blow to my own soul. On occasion, you are ashamed of the gospel. If you're willing to admit that, then this message is for your strengthening and for your conviction and for your conviction and for your conviction and for your edification. In Paul's second inspired letter to Timothy, he's determined to graciously, albeit forthrightly, address this very same problem in the life of Timothy. Now, to be sure, Timothy was a faithful minister, no doubt. Paul was proud of him for his exceptional devotion and loyalty. We saw that last week. He'd been given many difficult assignments, and he had been faithful to discharge them all. But there had apparently been times that Paul knew about where Timothy had been ashamed of the gospel. He failed to speak when there was opportunity to direct the conversation to Christ. He failed to take a stand for Christ when it might cause some embarrassment to him or might put him on the outside of polite society. He, he held back from full disclosure of his devotion to Christ and therefore... He found himself in the, or at least he 
was worried that he might find himself in the crosshairs of someone who may not like him or think badly of him. In his defense, the adversarial pressures that he frequently faced were a hundred times worse than probably anything that we will typically encounter. We fear that we will encounter some things like Timothy faced, but we hardly ever do. The kinds of temptation we face as we try to faithfully proclaim the excellencies of Christ hardly ever rise to the level of what we would really, truly call suffering. But Paul suffered. Paul really, really suffered. Paul suffered frequently, sometimes severely, sometimes to the point of death. And he expected Timothy to join him. No holding back. No uh, fear of taking a stand. No missing an opportunity. In fact, one could make the case that the message of this entire letter to Timothy from Paul is an appeal not to flee personal suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ, but rather to resolve to suffer whenever necessary for the sake of the gospel. And I want to show that to you this morning. And so be ready to kind of flip. We're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to go all the way through. I'm just going to show you some some examples of this, maybe not all of them. I, I count 12. I, I, I heard someone else this week say there are 14. Here's the ones that I see, verse 8 of chapter 1. So chapter 1, verse 8, he says, this is Paul to Timothy, share in my sufferings. We'll come back to that in a minute. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer. Chapter 2, verse 3. Share in my sufferings as a good soldier. Chapter 2, verse 9, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Chapter 3, verse 11, my persecution and suffering that happened to me in Antioch, persecutions which I endured. Chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Chapter 4, verse 5, endure suffering. Verse 6, I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering. 4.10, Demas has forsaken me. 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Chapter 4, verse 16, at my first defense, no one stood with me. Timothy, suffer for the sake of the gospel. Timothy, I am suffering much for the gospel. Timothy, jump in. The water's not as bad as you think. And if it is, <laughs> life is short, eternity is long, and the glory of God is worth it. This is the kind of ministry Timothy was called and gifted for. It was a ministry that brought him joy. And was it a ministry that bore fruit in the souls of lost people? Of course it was. But in doing it, Timothy needed to understand that from time to time it was going to cost him. And for him, a lot more often than for us. We should not shrink back from the call to be faithful with the gospel. Now obviously, these truths speak directly to me. If you've ever heard me say I'm preaching to me, uh, there's no better case than this 
this book, this whole book was written to me and to Keith and to Jason and to Brent Osterberg and people who are in pastoral ministry. Yes, definitely. But you know, when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, guess who he was talking to? Wasn't just the disciples. You know who it was to? It was to everyone who was there. And there were a bunch of people there when he said that. It wasn't just the apostles. It wasn't just the disciples. It is in the church, all of us. We, we have different responsibilities in sharing the gospel, different priorities in sharing the gospel, to be sure. Nevertheless, we are all called to be faithful with the message of Christ as we have opportunity. And so, before we dive into this text this morning, as always, let's stand together out of honor for God's word and read the text for this morning. First Timothy, no, I'm sorry, Second Timothy, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Apostle Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that, that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the sake of the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I am appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do but I am not ashamed. Let's see if these words sound familiar. For... I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. I see three hooks to hang our thoughts on this morning. They are, number one, a call to courageous gospel suffering. Secondly, a gospel worthy of our suffering. And third, a promise sufficient to our sufferings. And let's, let's begin with the first. A call to courageous gospel suffering, verses 6 through 8. Let me just read those again. So you've got those fresh in your mind. Verse 6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power 
and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I've often said from the pulpit here at Calvary Bible Church that the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is not a comprehensive list. It is a sampling of the fruits of the Spirit. Evidence of that is in the fact that humility is not on the list, and yet, if you have it at all, I guarantee it's by the Holy Spirit. Nor is courage, which Paul is demanding that Timothy have, and we surely will not have it apart from God. It is a fruit of the Spirit. They are certainly qualities that are produced by God, by his Spirit in the heart of the redeemed. And Paul is saying here, what he's saying is that while there may be unnamed fruits of the Spirit, while there may be many unnamed fruits of the Spirit, listen carefully, fear is not one of them. Fear, and that is sinful fear, and I'm not talking about the kind of fear that God gave us for our protection that's good and right, and, and we ought to be afraid of some things, like bullets and you know, somebody swinging a baseball bat at your head or stepping off the curb and seeing a bus come, you know, and you're, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> fear is a good thing. But there is a faithless, ungodly fear that keeps us from obeying the word of God when we should obey. And it's not just about evangelism. It's about all aspects of obedience to Christ. And so fear is not a fruit of the Spirit. And, and he says that. He says, God gave us a spirit not of fear. Not of fear. What kind of fear is Paul thinking of? Not the fear of the Lord, to be sure. That is a godly fear. It certainly is a fruit of the Spirit. No, here Paul is speaking of a kind of fear that's translated in the NASB as timidity. The Greek word is actually sometimes translated, you ready for this? Cowardice. Ouch. Does that sting? He's talking about a state of fear due to a lack of courage. It's a shrinking back in the face of a perceived real or imagined threat, not to the glory of God, not to another person, but to self. The command, do not fear, is the most often repeated command in the Bible. Let me just give you a short sampling. Genesis 15.1, Abraham, God was about to promise his coming son, and when he appears to Abraham, he says, Abraham, do not fear. Exodus, God repeatedly says, do not fear. Deuteronomy, on the border of the promised land, God told the people through Joshua, do not fear. Joshua at the Jordan, or through Moses, then Joshua at the Jordan. They were about ready to go into the promised land the night before. He's standing over there looking over the Jordan River. He can see the lights of, of Jericho in the distance, and a man appears to him with a sword. Turns out to be the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And the first thing he says to Joshua is what? Do not be afraid. Whenever an angel appears, 
the message immediately is, don't fear. Um, when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, he said, do not be afraid. You remember when the, the women went to the garden tomb and Jesus wasn't there, but there was somebody there. Depending on which gospel, there was one angel or two angels there. And what did they say to the women? Do not be afraid. God is really concerned that we don't give in to faithless fear, to sinful, godless, faithless fear. That kind of fear is not from the Spirit. And you may ask, well, what does the Spirit give us when faced with an encounter we perceive to be threatening? What does he give us to keep us from faithless fear? Well, verse 7 says this. He gives us, number one, power. And this is directly connected here because Jesus said to his disciples, you shall receive what? Power when the, what? Holy Spirit comes upon you. I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the power that he's talking about? This is the power to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. They did it with tongues as they were declaring the glory of God. It's power. This isn't power of personality. It isn't power of persuasiveness. It isn't power of intimidation. It's the power of the Spirit of God to turn enemies of God into the sons of God through the gospel of God. It is power. Secondly, God gives us love. Now, this is a fruit of the Spirit. It is kind of the summary, perhaps, of all the fruits of the Spirit. This is agape love, by the way. The Greek here is agape. This is not erotic love, eros. It is not brotherly love, Philadelphia. It is volitional love. It is agape love. It is a love that acts and moves intentionally for another person's good. You know the definition we use around here, right? To love is to give what I have that you need because God wants us to. When you choose to take advantage of an opportunity to share the gospel of Christ, the Holy Spirit fills your heart with love for the sinner to whom you're speaking. At least he does if you are under the sway of the Spirit of God. You know, we don't share the gospel reluctantly. We don't share it in the power of the flesh. When the Spirit is moving in our hearts to share the gospel, we do it with love. We do it with grace. Regardless of that person's race, religion, culture, today we have to add gender. It doesn't matter what they call themselves in terms of gender. You don't have to engage at that level. Love them. Love them. Share the gospel with them. And the third thing he gives is self-control. Some versions say discipline. Some say a sound mind. It's the opposite of a depraved mind, the depraved mind of unbelievers, as Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1, where he says that, that when God gives them over, this is the judgment of abandonment. You want your sin? Here, have it. Have it. And the very last in the list of the effects of God's judgment is a depraved mind. They get what they want, they get what they want, they get what they want until they can't even think properly anymore. 
They have a depraved mind. And here the idea is that the Spirit of God gives you the ability to think clearly when your emotions in, are, are otherwise tempted to run amok. And sharing the gospel can be a highly emotional thing because there is energy involved. It, it may be uh, fear involved. You're battling fear at the same time. And yet, by his Spirit, if you're trusting him, under the sway of the Spirit, walking by faith, he'll give you what you need to say. I'm not saying that he's going to speak through you like he had spoke through the Apostle Paul. It's not that kind of inspiration. But rather, he'll give you what you need. And he'll give you everything that he wants you to say at that point. You may walk away saying, oh, I wish I had said, but you didn't. And God is in that as well. God is in the speaking and the not speaking when you're trying to be faithful. He gives you the capacity to say what God wants you to say when you're sharing the gospel with someone else. And I think that's true in any ministry of the word. Therefore, verse 8, because the Spirit of God who indwells you grants you the necessary power, love, and self-control, therefore, watch this, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. I want to focus on the first part of that. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. The phrase, do not be ashamed, corresponds to spirit of fear. It's the same idea. He's saying the same thing in different words. The word ashamed here means, very similar, it means to feel shame, to be embarrassed, or to lack courage. Beloved, if we're going to be faithful to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, if we're going to be faithful to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to all people, it's going to require personal courage. It's courage. It's not, do I feel like it? I don't feel like it. I, don't know, I just don't feel led. Uh, the Holy Spirit hasn't convicted me. Not why he read the Bible. <laughs> you got a chance to speak? He's given you a chance to speak. Speak. It's going to require personal courage. In fact, I dare say that for the most part, we have more than enough theological education already. We have everything we need doctrinally to understand the gospel well enough to share it effectively. You know what we have? We have tons of education. And listen carefully. We are educated far, far beyond our obedience. And we're proud of our education. And a lot of times when it comes to sharing the gospel, we should be ashamed of our disobedience. It's just real easy to learn words, to learn concepts, and be able to regurgitate them. But are we living them? Are we under the sway of the word of God by his spirit? You know what we have to the extent that Calvary Bible Church is ineffective with the gospel? We don't have, listen carefully, we don't have an education problem. We have a courage problem. It's a courage problem. 
Now, I'm not saying that we wouldn't benefit from more training on how to share the gospel. I think anytime we can get more training, and we should probably offer that. And will, I think, this summer, more education on how to share the gospel. We need that, to be sure. But if you have a, an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus, just open your mouth and talk. Open your mouth and speak. Say what you know. You know what you know? You know something about sin. You know something about Jesus. You know something about the cross. You know something about the call to repentance. That's enough. It's enough. And then invite them. And so Paul says, don't be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord. What's that? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the testimony. It's the witness of Christ. It's just different terms speaking of the same thing, the gospel. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we read this. Same apostle Paul, recipient is the same. And he writes this. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It's the gospel. What Paul is saying is, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be a coward. Don't shrink back. Don't wimp out. When God gives you the opportunity to share the glad tidings, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, have courage and speak. You know, you don't have to speak very long. Sometimes God will give you an extended period of time to share everything you, you know about the gospel. That's rare. And maybe just a little. Maybe just to confront something that's false in the other person's thinking. And give them the truth in that regard, relative, usually relative to works as opposed to grace. So, Timothy, don't wimp out. Don't be ashamed. Have courage. Rather, share in my suffering for the gospel. That is, dive into the fray, even if you perceive a threat, whether real or imagined, or whether you're embarrassed. Don't, don't worry about it. Just dive in. Speak boldly by the power of God's Spirit. And the power of God will give you the capacity to suffer well, when necessary, as you share the gospel. And that's what he says here. For God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And, and, and then in the next verse, he says this, at, at the end, well, at the beginning of verse 9, he says, who's, uh, no, the end of verse 8, he says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This isn't your own intellect, although your own intellect is involved. The work that gets done, if it gets done at all, will be by the power of God. And that's where our hope rests, isn't it? So we share the gospel with family and friends. I have, I have seen people come to know Christ even in my unbelief. It's the message that matters. It's the message that matters. This is Paul's call to gospel suffering. And that brings us to a second point. A gospel worthy of our sufferings. Verses 9 through 12a. I always wanted to say 12a. 
the theologians talk about, you know, John 3.16a. Now let's talk about John 3.16b. It just sounds so intelligent. Okay, let's, <clears throat> like we really dissected this. But in this case, it's, it's important that we, we stop where, where, wherever we decide A ends. Look at verse 9. <laughs> Boy, get away from my notes and I get in trouble. Verse 9. The power of God, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of him, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, to abolish death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, which is why I suffer. It's all one sentence. We call these Pauline sentences. You know someone who, who when they get talking, they just ramble? It's Pauline. It, it, it's a biblical way to speak. <laughs> Paul's telling Timothy and us that we should be unembarrassed and unreserved about the gospel because it is so robust so significant, so powerful, so God-exalting that it is worthy of any amount of suffering that we may ever have to experience in presenting it. Why is the gospel worthy of our suffering? It's because the gospel is all about what God has done. I've said repeatedly here over the last 24 years, um, when you open your Bible in the morning and you read, you should ask the Bible questions. First question you should ask is, what does this text teach me about God? And what does this text teach us about God? This is what Paul points to here. And when he says at the end of verse 8, God, verse 9, who saved us, and it is God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling etc. This is all about God. The gospel is all about God. It is first of all about God. And so why is the gospel worthy of our suffering? Because it is glorious beyond anything we can think or imagine. What did God do? And what is this gospel that we read and so what we read next comes a kind of doxology to God by a compressed version of the gospel. Remember when I was a kid, somebody gave me a gift, and it was this little, it looked like a pill. And when you drop it in water, it expands, and it became, became this little, I don't know, animal kind of thing. It was weird, but it was, it was cool to drop it in the water, and, but then you could never get it back down to the size of a pill. But you drop it in water, and this thing would just expand, and, it would, and then it would, it would take shape, and you could see whatever it was. This presentation of the gospel is like a gospel pill. You drop it in front of a preacher, <laughs> <laughs> and it suddenly becomes a systematic theology. <laughs> this is glorious. I, I've never studied this before, this, this section, really as in-depthly as I have this week. And even, even then, I have to compress it for time. 
Um, we, we could have one sermon for every point in this small section. So let's get to it. Why should we, why should we be willing to suffer for this gospel? Number one, because it is the gospel of God who saves. It is a gospel of a God who saves. And, and notice the first words. Verse 9, God who saved us, who saved us. This, this is not a throwaway word. I mean, we're so used to salvation. But do we realize, I mean, have you ever thought, what if God were not a gracious God? What if he were not a loving God? What if he were only a just God? Then sending us all to hell would be perfectly right and just. Nobody would get injustice. Everybody would get justice. God is not obligated to save sinners. It would have been just for him to allow us to receive the eternal punishment we deserve. But we are recipients of the most wonderful thing God could ever have done for us. He saved us from eternal judgment. Why would we, why would we be unwilling to suffer momentarily for a gospel that secures for us a blessed eternity? This is the gospel of God, the God who saves. Secondly, it is the gospel of the God who calls. And the next phrase is, and called us with a holy calling. Paul's not talking about a, a call that goes out through the preaching of the gospel. That's, a, that's called the general call. And, and you hear it here almost every week. Come to Jesus, repent of your sins, find your rest in him, find forgiveness, bring all your shame, confess that the only thing you have to offer God is your sin and he will forgive. But understand, that's a general call. I'm, I'm broadcasting it. I'm casting it out among you, this room and the room down the hall and everyone who's listening right now by internet. You're hearing the gospel call, but that's not the kind of call he's talking about here. Paul is speaking of the effectual call. It is his mercy in which he didn't leave to us the decision to choose him. He is always the initiator, and he was the initiator in our salvation. Paul famously writes in Romans 8, those whom he called, he also, what? Justified. And you read that text, and, and what can you conclude except only those who are justified, that those, all of those who are justified, all of them have been called, have been called. And all of the called are justified. It can't be just the broadcast. It can't just be the preaching of God's word because this kind of call justifies. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it is not because you were smart enough. It's not because you were clever enough. It's not because you were wise enough to make the right decision. No, if you are a child of God this morning, it is yours by adoption. God went looking for you. God chose you. He called you. Remember what he said to the proud Corinthians who were all about their wisdom and their knowledge and all the, the Greek philosophical thought that they were trying to bring in to the church. And Paul said, listen, 
Let me remind you of something. Would you just for a moment consider your, what's the next word? Calling. There are not many wise. There are not many noble. Where are the scribes? Where are the debaters of this age? They are nothing. God has chosen the weak to shame the strong. He has chosen the foolish to make nothing of the wise. And so that no man may boast before God. It is all about his glory. Remember what he said to Israel? I didn't choose you because you were so great. I didn't choose you because you were so numerous. I chose you because you had nothing. You are no one. And all the glory comes to me. And thirdly, it is a gospel of grace. In fact, it is a gospel of grace to alone. This is not something that the reformers came up with. Salvation by grace alone. It's everywhere in Paul. Notice what Paul says. Not because of works, but because of his own grace. Nearly every person I talk to about salvation tells me the same thing. When I ask them, why do you think God's going to let you into heaven? Because I've been good. Been good, 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 good. <laughs> I mean, and, and a lot of them will say, I mean, I'm not Mother Teresa she's the standard of goodness, right? Um, I've been good. And, and, well, can you define good? Well, I've never killed anybody. You, you don't mean you're good. You mean you're not as bad as people who are in jail who have killed people. Well, no, 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 I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I think, in fact, when I get to heaven, God will throw all of my works on the scales, the good versus the bad, and, and the good will outweigh the bad. That's not this gospel. That's not Bible. That's not what the Holy Spirit has revealed to the world. By grace you have been saved, Paul said to the Ephesian church, through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is the statement of God's grace. This is the statement of God's sufficient grace. This is this is a statement of God's necessary grace. Fourthly, it is a gospel of God's sovereign grace. Notice I left out a word there. Paul says, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. It was God's initiative to save sinners. And, and, and well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but he initiated this before you were born, and even long before that. You see, God has an eternal cosmic purpose for saving sinners. And it isn't because he thinks you're sweet or would make a, a nice addition to his heavenly throng. It is so that for all eternity, his son whom he loves would be honored, glorified, worshipped, praised, and adored for eternity. This is God the Father's love for God the Son. There was a song out back in the 80s, a Christian song, God loves people more than anything. And I used to say, no, that's not true. God loves Jesus more than anything. God the Father loves his Son more than anything. You take that reality and then picture the cross. And that'll drive you deep into a love of God.
This is a statement of God's sovereign grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. But it is not merely a sovereign grace. It's not merely a sovereign grace, it's a transcendent grace. Look at what he says next. It is the gospel of sovereign grace that is in Christ. In Christ Jesus, he says. <clears throat> in Christ, I... Uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We are in Christ. This is God's sovereign grace in Christ. No one comes to the Father but by me. And you know what? If you're willing to say that before this generation, you're going to suffer some. Because in this pluralistic culture, that is way taboo. It is way out of bounds. Acts 4.12, Peter declares, there is salvation in how many? No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is, if you're going to be saved at all from the wrath of God that you deserve, it will be through Christ or no one at all. This is a Christ-centered gospel. You must be found in Christ or you are not saved at all. Listen, salvation is not a decision that you make. I'm not saying your will's not involved. It is. It is. You want, when you get salvation, it's because you want salvation. But it is God who has fixed your wanter so that you will want what you otherwise used to hate. Next, it is a gospel of transcendent grace. Not just grace, but transcendent grace. Notice he says, before the ages began... Saving, saving grace is transcendent grace because God determined to save a host without number before the world began. And people will say, you know, you guys who believe in the sovereignty of God over salvation, you limit salvation. To which I say, that's not true. And the Bible says there will be a host that cannot be numbered. It is you, on the other hand, who limit it to say it's only for those people who can figure it out and have the courage to make the decision. Praise God, it wasn't up to me. It wasn't up to me, it was up to him. He invented this gospel. He set everything in motion from the very beginning, even before the very beginning. It's a transcendent gospel. It is something that God initiated before he created the world. We think, creation, that's the beginning well, as we read his revelation, we find out there was a reason for creation. There was something before creation. And that is God's purpose to make his son glorious publicly. He's taking God's glory in Christ in the second person of the Trinity. He created us so that the glory of God in Christ would go public it isn't that God was lonely, he wanted more fellowship. You know, I kind of like you, Holy Spirit, and you, Jesus, but there's got to be somebody else to talk to. That is, that is not what was in the mind of God. 
It was more like this. Let's create someone to share our glory with so that they will know the eternal joy and delight that we know. Son, let me give you a people who will love you as I love you. And you will love them as you love me. Sound like John 17? The author of Hebrews refers to this as the eternal covenant. It's that in which God the Father promises to give to the Son a people who would be to the praise of his glory forever and ever. And speaking of John 17, here's what Jesus says in his what we call the high priestly prayer. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Listen, the first thing was not creation. The first thing was God's determined will that he would make his glory public, that the world would see it. And by seeing it, they would believe, and by believing, they would be saved. Ponder this, beloved. The reason the gospel is worthy of your suffering is because it has been the very mission of God to save sinners through the Son of God before he created the world. I'll take that home at nap time and try to think about it. And then next, it's not only, not only a transcendent grace, it is an incarnate grace. That's what he says here. He calls it now manifest in the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The word appearing is epiphania, from which we get the word epiphany. It, it's the standard word that we use at Christmas time, right? The epiphany, the appearing, the coming. The coming of what? The coming of grace. It's the same kind of terminology that's used in Titus chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared to men. What is that grace? It is, if it's appearing, it's not just a, a theological concept. It's a person. It is Jesus Christ. The gospel is the announcement of the grace of God. And this grace appeared in the world as a baby and then as a man who fulfilled all the Old Testament promises in all of the law. This Jesus is the promised King of Israel, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Christ of God. He is the one who accomplished this salvation and makes the gospel possible. It is all hinged on him, his work, not only on his death, but on his righteousness. You know, when you share the gospel, you need to encourage people. You not only have to repent of your sin, but repent of your righteousness. Because none of it will get you to heaven. And not only that, it, it, as if there needs to be more. You see how this thing, you drop it in water and it just... It is the gospel of death-destroying grace. Death-destroying grace. Notice what he says. Who abolished death. By his resurrection, he rendered death useless. Jesus declared, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will what? 
Two words, two words, sounds like ever, never. Never die, right? I am the resurrection and the life. Remember, it was at the death of Lazarus. Jesus shows up. He's having this theological conversation with Martha. And Martha says, I get it. I get it. He'll be, we'll all be resurrected at the resurrection. And Jesus says, no, 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 Mary, misunderstand. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives now and believes in me will, what? Never die. This is a death destroying gospel. Jesus declared it. And, and, and next, it is the gospel of life-preserving grace. It's not only a death-destroying grace, it's a life-preserving grace. Look at the next words. Which brought life and immortality to light. Immortality is simply a word that gathers up everything involved in the promise of eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And, and it just seems like this would be a good place to rehearse what it says in the Greek here because it's fitting. It actually says this, in this manner God loved the world. His love. It was not emotional. It was volitional. Because of our need, he loved us in this manner. And what is that manner? He gave his son, his only one, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And how does God apply the gospel all of this to the practical needs of the sinner, he tells us in verse 10 and 11, watch this, through the gospel, through the gospel, look at verse 10. He says, and which now has been, given, been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is the crown jewel of everything that God has created. And you can't even say God created the gospel. God is the gospel. To know him, to know him is to be redeemed by him. To know him is to be a recipient of his grace. Not, not know about him like two plus two is four and Billings, Montana is 2,700 miles away, or at least it feels that way. It's not that kind of knowing. It's the kind of knowing like a husband knows his wife and a wife knows her husband. It is an intimate knowledge that can only be given to you by the Holy Spirit. You can't do anything to get it, but you can ask. As for the gospel, verse 11, Paul was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, and he says this, this is why I suffer as I do. This is why I suffer as I do. 
Beloved, this is Paul's whole message. Timothy, I realize I haven't given you an easy job, nor have I taken an easy job. But I didn't sign up for this job. I was arrested by Christ. And he drafted me into this job. And there's nothing in the world I'd rather do than honor God who saved the chief of sinners than to tell sinners like me that they too can be redeemed. And Timothy, I'm about to leave you. And the church isn't in that good a shape. And the enemies of the cross are arising. And if you're going to be faithful after I'm gone, it's going to take courage. It's going to take conviction. It's going to take resolve. It's going to take perhaps help from the body of Christ. Beloved, does not thankfulness compel us to share this gospel? Thankfulness to God. Does not love for the lost require us to share this gospel, to proclaim it? Does not the glory of God demand that we declare it? Now someone will ask, well, how can I gain such a fearless courage and devotion and proclamation to proclaim the, the gospel of Jesus the way he's talking about? Well, you gain it the way Paul did. We've seen the call to courageous gospel suffering and a gospel worthy of our suffering and finally and very briefly, a a promise sufficient to our suffering. Watch this. You want to know how or why, that is, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel? He tells us in verse 12. Here's verse 12. This is the gospel for which I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for, here's the explanation. Here's why I'm not ashamed. Here's why I'm not a coward with the gospel. Here's why I can get up every morning and say, you know what, today's going to be a tough day, but... Um, but I'm diving in. This is how. For I know whom I have believed. And, and, and it's significant to note, he didn't say, I know what I believe. It's I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. If you're reading the ESV at the end of this verse, it says, he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The NAS, however, reads, he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So which is it? It depends on who you read. You stack up 10 commentaries, you're going to get about five on each side. And, uh, but I have an opinion. If you read the commentaries, you're, you're probably not going to get anywhere. But if you look at the context of the book, what, what's happening in the book? I think the whole letter, as I said, of 2 Timothy is nothing less than Paul strategically crafting his last words to encourage Timothy to be faithful in proclaiming the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ without shame, without cowardice, even in the face of personal suffering, even at the cost of his life. You will lose things. You, it will cost you something to be faithful with the gospel. And the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel stems from that perception of loss, potential loss. From the thought that I stand firm and call people to repentance and faith, 
in Jesus Christ alone, it may cost me a lot. I mean, it may cost your reputation among your unbelieving friends or your family. It might cost me a promotion at the job. By the way, regarding the family, I mean, you, you may have family members who will say, oh, yeah, that fanatic, yeah, the, the village fanatic that uh, shares our last name. Uh, my grandfather used to get called that by members of my family. He's, he's a fanatic. I mean, we're glad he loves Jesus and everything, but he's a, does he have to love him that much? Does he have to love him all over me? Um, it might cost my health. I mean, it cost, cost Paul his health and his associates. It might cost me some very dear friendships. In the end, it might cost me everything. So I think Paul is saying, Timothy, I've counted the cost, and I've paid the cost, and I've weighed everything. Everything that I stand to lose, I've weighed against the eternal value of being faithful to Christ. And I'm here to tell you I've concluded that the wisest and most fruitful and joyful place you can ever be is in obedience to your Savior. Count everything and do the math on what you stand to lose and then think about what you stand to gain. As for me, I have decided to count everything lost for the sake of Christ. I count it as rubbish that I may know him. And I am, I am convinced that on that final day, all of my suffering will, will pale in comparison to the glory, the weight of glory that God has for me. Where does he get that kind of courage? Well, it flows from his confidence in God. And so he writes, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced there's faith that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I think that's how this text should be read. I am convinced that he is able to guard everything that I have entrusted to him, my life, my soul, my eternity, everything. You know, I want to end where I started today. I was writing the introduction to this message and confessing, that I had been ashamed of the gospel. I had my dog in the hotel with me. Chris and the kids were at a debate tournament, and the dog is wanting to go play. So I grab a ball, we go outside, start throwing the ball around, and I look over on a picnic bench, and there's a young man sitting there, different ethnicity, different culture, different paradigm of life. And it was as if the text was saying to me, that the text that I had just been studying, God saying to me through the text, you're going to sound really repentant on Sunday. Are you going to repent now? And I looked at that young man, and he looked over at me, and he smiled. I said, hey, you want to throw the ball for my dog? He said, I'd love to. And within a couple of minutes, we were sitting at that picnic bench, and he was full of questions. And for 30 minutes just unpacked gospel truth after gospel truth after gospel truth after gospel truth. You know what? I have no confidence that he walked away from there born again. But you know what? I can't control that, neither can you, and that's not what God's calling you to. He's simply calling you to have the courage to engage with people.
to talk about Christ, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, and let God lead your mouth where it needs to go to give them the truth that they need to hear. So my prayer this morning is that God would use this text and this message to shake many of us free from the irrational fear of embarrassment that comes with cowardice so that we can say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for your word. Sometimes the promises of your word and the demands of your word are so sweet, so comforting, like a, like a perfect father. You also have much to say for our correction and for our exhortation. May we be careful how we listen to this text. May we hear not only to hear and remember, but to hear and obey for the great glory of Jesus, for the salvation of the lost, and for our own great joy, we pray in Jesus' name.